for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, religion is a trap. For some people, religion leads to the trap of pride. For others, religion leads to the trap of hopelessness. Let me give a couple examples of what I mean. Years ago in a little Baptist church, a a wise older deacon felt the need that he needed to take the young pastor out to lunch. He had just seen something going on in his heart, and the guy was doing a fine job preaching. It was interesting. It was exegetically sound. He was managing the church ministries well. The church was, in fact, growing. But he noticed that there were a couple of things that he was trying to lead the church to do There were good things, but there there was an edge about it with him. He was really trying to lead the church for everyone to read their Bibles every day and for everyone to attend the monthly prayer meeting. Now, I think we would all agree reading your Bible is good, going to the prayer meeting and prayer is good. However, for him, he was beginning to be really frustrated as people were struggling to do that. And the deacon was seeing pride in his heart over what was easier for him, yet harder for others. You see, successfully adhering to religious standards can breed pride in our hearts. There's a trap of pride with religion. But there's another trap with religion, which is uh, the, the trap of hopelessness. I heard a, uh, of a good shepherding elder who was doing what he needed to be doing, which was, you know, if he hadn't seen somebody in a while, he, he started reaching out to them. And here, here we, you know, when we don't see you, we begin worrying about you. And so, you know, elders reach out to folks. And that's what this elder did. There was a man in the church that he loved and he cared about dearly. And he just hadn't seen him in a bit. He hadn't seen him in a number of weeks. And he knew that he struggled with discouragement and he was struggling with loneliness. And so he reached out to the guy. Never heard back. He reached out a second time, a third guy, a third time. Finally, he reached back. They sat down and had lunch, and the elders' suspicions were correct. He was struggling with depression over feeling stuck in his career. He wanted to be married yet hadn't found a wife yet, and he was beginning to feel like a failure at church. You see, it seemed like from his perspective that everybody had it all together. These things that were hard for him weren't hard for other people. They were successful. They were happy, at least according to him. Of course, it wasn't true, but he felt like he was a failure because he couldn't live up to all these other religious standards that he had built up in his mind. So unsuccessfully living up to other people's religious standards can lead to the trap of hopelessness. Now, the way to avoid the religious traps of pride and hopelessness is to abandon trying to live up to these religious standards in your own strength. And, and it's to replace that with believing in God's covenant promises. That's how we avoid those two ditches. Hoping less in ourselves and more in God's sacred promises. That's how we walk through life with both humility and hope. The way we do that is we compare the old covenant with the new covenant. When we do that, we see the faults in the old covenant and we see the glories in the new covenant. Like, okay, well, 
practically what that can lead to is the fact that we avoid pride and we avoid hopelessness and we replace it with the joy that comes from seeing God's covenant promises and believing in those covenant promises. So all that pride is replaced, all that hopelessness is replaced with this great joy of knowing that we are indeed vessels of mercy. We're, we're ones uh, who, who have been changed and we have this, we, we have this never ceasing steadfast love of the Lord that he has committed to. And so God replaces pride and hopelessness with something better. The reason we don't have to fall into the trap of pridefully reaching up to God and to hopelessly never obtaining forgiveness or a right relationship with God is because of the covenant. Now we mentioned last week that that the covenant is a sacred promise. It's this contract, if you will. It's the way God chooses to relate to us. And by God's grace, he communicates how he wants to relate to us. Also, we talked about last week that this idea of covenant really is the organizing principle of the Bible. If you want to know how the the Bible is structured and organized and maybe even where we're going, then you need to understand the covenant. And a covenant, again, is just these promises that God makes to us. Now, in its broadest sense, the Bible is broken into the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Now, by covenant of works, we really mean Garden of Eden. So if you think back to the Garden of Eden, it was kind of one of those moments where, you know, they had one thing they had to do, right? Don't eat of the tree. That was one law, and if they were faithful to that, then they maintained the covenant of works. The problem is, is they did what you and I would do, is they ultimately broke it. They, They weren't able to maintain that covenant of works. Now, in that moment, the covenant of grace starts. Because in that moment, God could have given them judgment. They deserved judgment, right? But what did he give give them instead? He gave them mercy and grace. He covered their sins. He made the sacrifice. He made the, the prophecy and the promise of one who is to come. So at that moment, we enter into this covenant of grace. Now, there's nuance to that, right? Because there are distinctions between the Old Testament and the New Testament to the degree that we'll see today that he talks about an old covenant and a new covenant. But really, the old and the new are really within that broader covenant of grace. So there's nuance to it. And one of the nuances is is that the covenant of grace progresses. Another way of saying this is that it gets better over time. So as you walk through the scriptures, it only gets better for us. God's blessings get more glorious. Like, The law was better than the covenant of works, but man, the cross is so much better than the law. And and listen, this is not our hope, right? Our hope is in the new heavens and the new earth, so it only progresses in a positive way. It only gets greater and greater, and there are just more blessings that are to come. Now, the nuance again, we need to highlight that some people heretically make these hard distinctions between the old and the new. In fact, If you look through church history, some people go so far as to say there's a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament as if they're two different gods. Some people also say, well, the way you got saved in the Old Testament is by doing good works. Both of those ideas would be heretical. Those are not faithful to the Scriptures. Those are not true. Those are not correct interpretations of the Bible. Because we need to understand that the law and the cross, all of it is part of this covenant of grace. But again, there are distinctions And again, to the degree that one is old and one is new. And we're going to look at some of those differences today. Yet Jesus teaches in the Gospels that even though there are distinctions, that they relate to each other intentionally. Jesus is the intended end of the Old Covenant. The word Jesus uses is that he says he fulfills the law. 
He fulfills all that was in the new. He takes it to its intended purpose. He doesn't uh, ever go against the law. So if you say, well, Jesus never spoke to something, but the law does. Wait a second. Jesus never contradicts the law. Jesus always takes it to its intended purpose. He fulfills the law. Okay, that's covenant theology in a nutshell. However, today, Hebrews 8, 7 to 13, we're going to look at the faults of the old covenant, the promises of the new covenant, and then thus the good news of the new covenant. And remember, we're in Hebrews, which means the whole book is written to keep you from falling away. So this deep dive into covenant theology and what is the covenant, it's intended for you to draw closer to God. It's meant for you to compare the two, see that the new is better in such a way that it actually elevates your joy in the Lord and then draws you closer to God when you are tempted to fall away. Let's look first at verse 7, that the old covenant had faults. In verse 7 we read, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Last week, we looked a bit at verse 7, and we saw that the old covenant had faults. And the new covenant uh, was established as a result of those faults. Another way of saying this is it was insufficient in some way. And we need to understand that the way it was insufficient is, is that it didn't, have this, it didn't offer this ultimate mediator for us. The new covenant gives us this, this go-between, this bridge to God, this, this, this pathway to eternal salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that the old was not gracious and good. In the Old Testament law, it was gracious and that taught us the way that we should live. That's why when you read the Psalms, David says, I love the law. He loves it because God shows us the way that we are supposed to live. Isn't that good and gracious, right? And further, the law uh, is good in that it highlights that we are never going to be good enough. That's also really good and gracious because it shows us that we need something, right? So the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the law are gracious and good. However, it doesn't provide an eternal solution. Hebrews 8, 6 explains that Jesus provides us something, quote, much more excellent. Jesus is better in that he does more than just show us a way to live. Jesus is better because he doesn't just show us that we are not good enough. Rather, he mediates for us. He's this go-between between between God and us. He's this priest forever. He's our go-between. He's our arbiter. And as a result, he has enacted better promises. Jesus is better than the law. Let me explain what I mean. Years ago, a college student started attending a church, and he got to know the pastor, and the pastor did what pastors do. He said, hey, let me take you to lunch, and let me get to know you a little bit. So they go to this Mexican restaurant, they sit down, and the pastor does what the pastor does. Hey, if you were to die tonight and stand before God in heaven, he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? This young college student looked at the pastor and said, honestly, that's why I wanted to go to lunch. I have no idea. I, I, I was hoping you could tell me that. And so the pastor did, and maybe you've explained the gospel in this way. He took out a napkin from the restaurant, and he, he drew two kind of uh, cliffs with a canyon in the middle. And then he read to the college student, he read Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. On, on one side of the canyon there on the left, he, he wrote the first part of that verse, Wages, Sin, and Death. And he explained that, you know, the thing that we earn, the wage for our sin is death, and it's eternal death. And it means that we're separated from God. And then on the other side, he talked about that, he wrote that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Gift, life, Jesus. 
And he said, okay, the question is, how do we get from one side to the other? And so he drew a cross in the middle, a sort of a bridge. He wrote Jesus Christ on it. He said, the way you get to eternal life is you trust in Christ. It's not about earning a right position with him. It's about walking across this bridge. He's walking across this Jesus bridge, if you will. He's the mediator. He's the go-between. He said, have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted in Christ? Have you ever walked across that bridge? He said, no, I haven't. So the pastor led this young man in a prayer and at that Mexican restaurant, that young college student was born again. Isn't that better to have a mediator, to have a go-between, to to have this, this bridge that we can cross from death to life? Isn't that better than earning your way up to God? Isn't that better than religion? Isn't grace better than religion? Amen? Is that better to you? You see, it's better that he paid our debts. It's better that we don't have to pay our debt and then suffer eternity in damnation. Isn't the covenant better? Well, let's take a deeper dive into covenant theology and look with me in this next section from verses eight uh, eight and nine, and we're gonna see the prophetic promises of the new covenant are better. Let's start with eight and nine. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. This section in Hebrews 8 is is a quotation from Jeremiah 31, and it's a prophecy. It's a prophecy of the sort where he's predicting something in the future. He's saying, this thing is coming in the future. This old covenant is going to be done away, and it's going to be replaced with a new covenant. This old covenant is filled with faults. This old covenant is insufficient, and so something new is going to be replaced by it. Something better is coming. Now, one way to maybe summarize the old covenant is earlier in Jeremiah, in chapter 7, verse 23, the prophet says, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, and it shall go well with you. Now, that's certainly true, right? It's certainly true that if we obey the law, a lot of things will go well for us. So if you obey the law and the way you do your marriage, there's good things that come from that. If you faithfully obey the law, God's will for you, and the way that you work, things will go well for you. So many things you'll be able to avoid. So many problems you'll be able to avoid. However, there is a problem with the law there, right? Obey God, it'll go well with you. There's a couple of key problems with that. What happens when we don't faithfully obey the law? Am I the only one in here that struggles with that? What happens when you don't faithfully obey the law? And second, what happens when trials come, yet you are faithfully obeying the law? Like what happens when, we're never doing everything right, but what happens in your mind when I'm doing everything right and I still have these struggles? See, that highlights the need for something new and something better. However, at the end of verse 9, we read, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them. Hear me, this is does not mean that God is somehow disinterested or unloving towards them. It's just the inevitable consequence of them pulling away from God, of unfaithfully disobeying God. You see, when we turn from God, we experience the consequence of going away from Him. But when we draw near to Him, we experience the blessings of coming near to Him. But again, the new is better than the old, and Hebrews 8 teaches us four key ways that the new covenant is better than the old. 
First, it teaches us that God's word is now inside of us. God's word is now inside of us. Second, the new covenant is better because we have a more permanent and personal relationship with God than we did in the old. It's better because we have something that's more, that we have a relationship with God that is more permanent and more personal. And number three, we're going to see that the new covenant is better because each of us can have an intimate relationship with God. Each and every one of us. Not just the superstar Christian, not just the Green Beret Christian, but each and every one of us. Every ordinary, average Joe can have this intimate, personal relationship with God. And number four, we're going to see that all our sins, and really the ground of all of it, is that all of our sins are eternally forgiven. Follow along as I read 10, 11, and 12. For, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Four promises in here. Four ways that the new covenant is better than the old. The first one is, is in the new covenant, God's word is now inside of us. Look again at verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and write them onto their hearts. This truth means that in some way, God's word is internalized in us in a way that the law never actually completed. We have the law of God inside of us. Now, if you think about all of Jesus' teaching, he was constantly cutting to the heart. He was constantly interested in the motivations of your heart. It wasn't just about the outside, these outward religious works that you did. That's what the Pharisees were concerned with. He was always cutting to the heart. You see, Christianity is ultimately not about keeping external rules. Now, when we were younger, maybe we thought that. Or maybe those who don't believe this on the outside, that's what they claim Christianity is about. But Jesus is very clear that that's not what Christianity is about. It's really about having our hearts transformed by the gospel, our motivations change, the way we think about things change, and then behaviors follow. But it's really, he's interested in the heart first. The new covenant is about change on the inside, and this is the intended end of God's word. However, the old covenant, it was slightly different, right? Like, like when you read the Old Testament, when, when you, you remember the period of the kings in the Old Testament? If that king was faithful, then the entire nation was blessed. But if that king was unfaithful, and most of them were, then all of God's people were cursed, right? It, there's an emphasis on the priest. So there was this temple system and the tabernacle, and you had this, you know, this, uh, this priestly cultic thing that happened. And so maybe your heart was in the wrong place, but you could show up to Jerusalem once a year and, and give your animal, and they could sacrifice it, and you could go on your merry way. There was a sense that, you know, there was a focus on maybe what was out on the outside. There was a focus on rules and rulers. But, then, but we saw in Hebrews 4.12 that God's Word is living and acting discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So under the new covenant, God's word is more an internal, it's more personal than it was before. And have, have you ever memorized scripture? Maybe you've come across a scripture that's really impacted you. You memorized it, you pondered it, and then it transformed your thinking, right? You perceived things differently. And maybe you went through the exact same trial as somebody else, 
But you were able to navigate it in better and in different ways because you were thinking something different about it. Have you ever noticed that if you're thinking according to God's word, maybe on a problem or a trial, then your emotions follow it, right? Like, have you seen those people that are walking through something very difficult, but they they just seem to have the peace of the Lord through it, right? That's what God's word does. That's how it internally transforms us. It internally transforms how we perceive something. We go back to, okay, Romans 8 said, yeah, God is with me. God is for me. God is going to work good through this. We, we go back to these things in such a way that they transform our emotions. We, we feel differently about something. So maybe the circumstances of our life are just all over the place, but yet we still have this joy that is preserved. We, we find delight in worshiping Him. The new covenant is better because it transforms our minds and it transforms our heart. The good news is that God's Word is now inside of us. But second, the second benefit of the new covenant is is that we have a more permanent and a more personal relationship with God. Look again at verse 10. He says that I will be their God and they shall be my people. Having a people and dwelling with his people, that's always been God's intentions. Look, think about the bookends of the Bible. In, in Genesis, in the garden, God was walking with them. He was with them. And if you think that's good, and you fast forward to uh, Revelation 21, he talks about the new heavens and the new earth, and it talks about that God will dwell with his people. We will be with God. That's, that's the intention of God, is, is to have this people where he walks with them. In the new covenant, our relationship with God is more permanent, and it's more personal. It's still part of this ultimate plan of God, but it just gets more permanent, and it just gets more personal. It, it's more permanent because through Jesus' sacrifice, nothing can separate us from that loving relationship with God. Nothing can separate us. It's more permanent than anything out there. He certainly disciplines our sin, but he never exiles us from his presence. Amen? Just because it's an encouragement. Romans 8, 38 to 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. In the new covenant, we have this permanent permanent promise that God is with us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But it also is very, very personal, isn't it? You see, we can have this very personal, spiritual experience with God. I've been reading a little book by John uh, Crotz named uh, Living Confidently in God. It's all about hope. He he says that he speaks of Jesus' personal relationship with us. Let me just give you a few of his quotes. He says the trials he experienced on earth were so intense that he can always relate to you in your suffering. Whatever you're going through, maybe he didn't go through that exact thing, but I promise you he went through categorically what you're going through. He went through suffering. He knew what it was like. So you can always go to him. He, He can always relate to you in your suffering. This means that he can minister to us in uniquely personal ways. Uh, Crock goes on to say that the Lord Jesus genuinely cares about you in your specific situation. No matter what it is, he cares for you in that specific situation. Maybe your mom doesn't care. Maybe your best friend doesn't care. Maybe your spouse doesn't care. Maybe they think it's all silly. But to you, when you're really struggling, Jesus is there with you in that. He cares about every specific situation that you're walking through. One more quote from from John Crott. He says that Jesus can help you. He wants to help you. 
He knows how to help you. He will help you. And in that is real hope. Amen. He knows how to help you. Maybe your therapist or your doctor, and I think therapists and doctors are great, but Jesus knows better than them. And, and hear me, maybe those people, maybe your spouse cares for you. Maybe your best buddy really cares for you, but they can't touch the type of care and the love that Jesus has for you. And, and further, maybe they don't know how, maybe they don't have the heart for it, but Jesus does, and he promises that he will help you. His heart's desire is to climb into that struggle with you and help you. The new covenant is better because we have a more permanent and personal relationship with God. Amen. There's a third way that the new covenant is a blessing, and it's that each of us can have an intimate relationship with God. Look again at verse 11. He said, he says, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. This verse promises a knowledge of God of, for all kinds of people. The, the new covenant promises that we can know God. The, the reason why churches have pastors and elders, according to the Bible, is that they are here to teach you, to teach you the knowledge of God. They're not here to, you know, dance or put on a show for you or run effective programs and all that. Their role in your life is to teach you the knowledge of God. Just to give you a few verses, 1 Timothy 3, 2 explains that my role, that Mike's role, that Andy's role, leaders of a church, their role is that, are, are that their job description is they need to be able to teach. Titus 1, 9 says that my role is to give you instruction. Paul goes on in Titus 2, 1 that says that, that we are to teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is why I think my calling as a pastor is 2 Timothy 4.2, which is to preach the word. That's the role of leaders in the church. And the reason God gives us leaders in the church is so that we will know God. We have teachers in the church so that we will know God. And hear me, we all need that. We all need to know God. And the way we know God is through the teaching of his word. So there's a sense of that we need to know the truths about God. We need to know God theoretically, if you will, before we can get to the practical and before we can get to the experience. And, and hear me, that's the purpose of this text. That's why uh, Hebrews 8 is there. That's the purpose of every sermon we preach. That's the purpose of every little lesson that we teach in every little classroom is for us to know theoretically, if you will, about God so that then we can know experientially that God. So there's a link here that's going on here. We need to theoretically have knowledge of God in order to have that experiential knowledge of God. That's the goal of Hebrews 8, 11. Now, this is all certainly good news, but so in fact that every single one of us can have knowledge of God. That's good news that we can have knowledge of God. But I think it's great news that every single one of us can have that knowledge. Every single one of us. It's not just the kings, it's not just the priests and the prophets, but it's the no-names. It's the ordinary people like us. We can learn about him and we can experience this joy-filled communion with him. Each and every one of us can have an intimate relationship with God. And in our most intimate of sufferings, he is there. He is right there with us. In our most tender victories, he is right there with us. Each morning, we can go to him. Every single one of us can go to him. The reason for all of this is because Jesus took care of our sin problem. 
But the good news gets even better because there will be a day when every single one of us will not need the teaching of pastors and elders because God, because we will be with God in such a way that we will have this full knowledge of Him and that we will have this glorious experience of Him and thus you will not need me in your life anymore. <laughs> I'm working myself out of a job that we can be with God and know him in this glorious way. The new covenant is progressing to greater and greater and greater knowledge of God. And the new heavens and the new earth, we see in Revelation 21 that all things will be made new. And we also see that, we will, that God's dwelling place will be with us. We will have this knowledge of God that we don't have today. That's the glorious hope of the new covenant. But there's one more. This is the ground of it all. This is why all of this happens. Fourth, the thing this passage explains is that, the new co- that in the new covenant, our sins are eternally forgiven. Look at uh, Hebrews 8.12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the ground of all this, that Jesus mercifully blots out our sins. It is gone. He remembers it no more. The new covenant is part of the covenant of grace and that God does not give us what we deserve. When we deserve judgment, He gives us mercy. He's not a harsh judge, but He's a loving, tender Father. Exodus 34 says it this way, that He is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The truly good news about all this good news is that His mercy is permanent. It's steadfast. His love for you never ends. His mercy never runs out. And all of that is based upon the fact he does not remember our sins anymore. It's it's not periodically there. It's always there. It's not based upon you being good or clean. No, his mercy remains steadfast. We don't have to clean ourselves up to receive our mercy. In fact, your uncleanliness is what then qualifies you for his mercy. Do you see that? It's not about you getting it right and then coming to him. It's about coming to him as you are. And he's the one who cleans you up and forgives you. This is all true because after the cross, he remembers our sins no more. Sins were never completely forgiven and forgotten in the Old Testament. They were never completely forgiven and forgotten in the Old Covenant. It was not until the work of Christ ushering in this new covenant that forgiveness is made permanent. It wasn't until Jesus that forgiveness was total. Romans 4, 7 says that our sins are covered by Christ. In fact, uh, his work is so total that he chooses to remember them no more. Micah seven nineteen says that he casts all our sins into the depths of the sea. You see, on the cross, Jesus blots them out forever, eternally. Brothers and sisters, what good news. No memory of our sins. You have memories of your sins and you replay them. The devil has memories of your sins, and he condemns you with them. But what does God say? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? That's the new covenant. Not judgment forever, but mercy forever. Look with me at verse 13. The good news of the new covenant. And speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Verse 13 summarizes all that's been said. The old covenant is obsolete. It's no longer useful. It's weak. It's old. It's run its course. It's served its purpose. 
But something new has come. Something better has come along. However, the new covenant is not some sort of new law. It's something much better than the old. Jesus perfectly lived according to the law. Thus, He fulfilled the law in order to give us grace when we deserved judgment. Jesus said it this way, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for for many. You see, his blood bought this new sacred contract between us and God. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Poof. When Jesus rose from the dead, the old vanished away and the new came. Friends, isn't that better? Isn't that better than anything the world is tempting you with? Any religion out there, do you believe that it's better? Do you find joy in the new covenant? Are you persevering based upon the knowledge of the new covenant? Friends, like the original hearers, we can erroneously put our hope in religion. But we can, we can, uh, uh, we can uh, believe in religion and, it can, and we can experience the pride that comes from living that way. We can experience the hopelessness that comes from living that way. But this is a call to the covenant. It's, it's a call to believe something different. It's a call to humility and worship. This, this is a deep dive into some, uh, some high theology, right? I mean, it's really wrestling with this deep stuff, but ultimately this passage is a call to believe the new covenant promises. It's a call to believe them to the point that you joy in those new covenant promises. And it's a call to joy in them to the point that it helps you persevere no matter what is tempting you away. This is so much better. Of course, as we've seen, all this is based upon the fact that your forgiveness is not through your work, but it's through Jesus' work. He's the one that casts your sins into the sea. You're not able to do that. 1 John 1.9 says that if, you confess, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, you don't get to experience a new covenant if you haven't confessed and believed. I, I can't speak always for the will of God, okay? I, I don't always know what He's doing, but I do know that God is sovereign, and I do know that he's good. And that means that I believe that he, if he brought you into this room today, he brought you here for a reason. And, and I don't know fully what's going on in your life. But I do know that if you've come into this room and if you've never confessed and if you've never believed, if you're trusting in your own good works to reach up to God, or if you think you're never going to be good enough and you're still trying and you're just stuck in that hopelessness, friend, I think he brought you here for you to confess your sins and believe in him. Stop believing in yourself, but believe in Him. To trust in Him and be made right with Him. What I'm getting at is don't waste this moment. If He's brought you here, there's nothing more than what our pastors and elders want to do is to pray with you on how you can be converted, how you can be born again, how you can trust in Him and be made right with Him. Religion has failed. Religion leads to pride. Religion leads to hopelessness. But the gospel leads to something much more glorious. He died for you to be made right with him. And listen, if you believe this is better, then you will find joy pondering the fact that he has changed your heart, that he's, he's graciously given you a permanent and personal relationship. And by you, I mean even you. Even you and your struggles and in your brokenness and your lack of stardom, if you will, even you, he's given you all those eternal promises, and all of it is based upon the fact that even you, he's forgiven you. 
He's not holding those things against you, like maybe your flesh is or maybe the devil is. He is not holding those things against you. Those truths will lead to pride and hopelessness, but the new covenant, it leads to humility and worship. What a joy. Are you with me in that? What a joy. And, and hear me, let's keep it in the context of Hebrews. This is all about persevering. That's better than anything that is tempting you to fall away. Isn't this better? Isn't joying in this better than anything else? Doesn't this help you persevere? It does me. We have something better in Christ. I heard a story this week about a London businessman who owned an old warehouse. And his tenant had moved out and he wanted to sell the warehouse and get rid of it. The problem was, it's kind of in that in-between time before he could sell it and after the tenant had moved out, all these vagrants had, had moved into the, to the warehouse. I mean, they, they just trashed it. They destroyed it. They broke windows. They were taking drugs in there. There's drug paraphernalia everywhere. They just torn up the walls. They torn up the AC, the floors. I mean, they, they graffitied over everything. And so here this man had this asset. He was trying to sell it. And then, you know, he would bring a, a, a potential buyer and all those buyers could see it. They just saw all the problems all over the place. Oh my goodness, we gotta fix this, we gotta fix this. And just weeks turned into months and he could not get this thing sold. There, there was just too many things wrong with the building. And so finally he got another buyer came and, and he was desperate to close the deal. And so the owner listed all the money he was willing to spend to fix up the place. So he offered to fix the windows. Hey, I'm gonna put in new floors. Don't worry about the floors. Hey, we're gonna come in and we're gonna clean all this out for you. We, you know, we're gonna paint the whole thing. We're gonna fix the AC. You know, we're gonna fix all these problems. And he's going through his list and listing all the money he's willing to spend. Finally, the new buyer paused or, or stopped him. And he said, listen, I'm not buying your building. I'm buying the land. As soon as we purchase the property, we're gonna take a wrecking ball to that old building and we're gonna build something new and something better. Friends, Jesus took a wrecking ball to the old covenant. He just destroyed it. That old religion that said, you're better than everybody, he destroys that. That old religion that said, you're never good enough, he destroys that. That, that old religion that just keeps you trapped in pride and hopelessness and in condemnation, he destroys all of that. And he, what was filled with faults, has vanished he built something better. He transforms our insides, not just telling us to be good on the outside. You see, he comes along and he gave us a permanent, personal relationship with God. He's not like those conditional relationships you experience. That man, when you're really benefiting somebody, they're your friend. But man, when you don't benefit them anymore, they're nowhere to be found. That's not the way God works. It's permanent, it's personal. He gave each and every one of us the opportunity to have that relationship with him. Not just the superstars, but the, the ordinary average folks like us. Each and every one of us. And he does all of that because he forgave our sins and he chose not to remember them anymore. Poof. He doesn't remember them. They're gone. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. What joyous good news. Amen. May we be a people that persevere, persevere by joying in what's new. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage and this glorious reminder of the new knowledge that we have, of something better, of something new. But we thank you that even though our 
flesh tries to teach us that we need to earn love and earn favor. And even though the devil lies and says we'll never be good enough, you offer something new. You offer something better. You offer us true good news. Lord, maybe we be a people who believe it. Lord, if there's someone in here that has never walked over that bridge in belief in you, has abandoned trusting themselves, abandoned trying to reach up and clean themselves up, but rather are trusting in you, I pray today would be the day they would believe. Lord, for those of us who maybe we have walked across that bridge, maybe we have been born again, but we're tempted to believe the wrong things. It's leading to pride and hopelessness. I pray that we would go back to the new covenant promises, that they would be new and fresh to us today, that they would lead us to great joy in you. They would cause us to sing out loud in these next moments together as we ponder the gospel and how glorious you truly are to us. Lord, may we be a people that believe in, enjoy, and persevere in the new covenant. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.